Welcome to X-Rated. Season 4. Oh my god. Season 5. Lordy, lordy, looks who's 41. Season 5. It is season 5. Which is confusing because it's episode 41. Right. Season 5 opener. Yeah. We got a crowd pleaser. Yeah, we do. Save that for later though. We'll get there. We were on the break when this happened, but Toby Hooper died last week. That's right. Uh, and since we were on break, we didn't get a chance to mention it. Mm-hmm. Another horror great. We lost George Romero earlier this year. They're just and, dropping like flies. And we lost Toby Hooper, you know, best known for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and or Poltergeist, depending on, you know, what you grew up watching. Let's throw Life Force in there, too, just because... You and I <laughs> have differing opinions on Life Force. <laughs> I know that you're like space vampires with Patrick Stewart. Like I'm so in. <laughs> what? God, you but... had me at space. <laughs> uh, Toby Hooper. So Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You're not gonna hear me badmouth that movie. Mm-hmm. That is like the most unforgiving horror film. Unforgiving in so much that it doesn't like completely go off the rails. Yeah. Like there's definitely. I mean, we've both seen horror movies that build and build and get so crazy that they're just suddenly we don't believe them or right. we're not into it anymore. Texas Chainsaw like gets to that like crazy level, but you're still in it. You're just stuck there. Like you're just right in the journey with them. Uh, it's a hard watch. And there's also like very little blood. Like the chick gets like her finger cut near the end and the dude like cuts his hand in the car in the beginning. And like that's really it in the ways of blood in that mm-hmm. movie. So it's not gory really by any means, but it's still... Just a difficult, difficult movie. Psychologically, it's a real mindfuck. And then, A, I don't really even like Poltergeist, but B, I don't think he directed it. Yeah. There's a dispute as to who directed it, him or Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg was directing E.T. at the time. Across the street. And was contractually obligated not to direct another movie Mm -hmm. while making E.T. And yeah, I don't know. There's something about Poltergeist, it just, it seems too much like a Spielberg movie. And not enough like a Toby Hooper movie. Because mm-hmm. he made like Life Force, you know, a year or two after that. And it feels like he just was trying to rip off what Spielberg did in Poltergeist <laughs> and put that like style of visual into Life Force, mm-hmm. but just didn't have the pizzazz. Yeah. So Life Force isn't a good movie. I don't wanna I don't wanna sound like I'm a fan of the movie. I just think it's worth a watch. Yeah, other than Texas Chainsaw, I can't I can't name a Toby Hooper film that I would be particularly proud of. Yeah. You know, even even the films that have moments, they're few and far between. Like Funhouse, did you ever see that one? I didn't, no. Uh, it's like a murderer is let loose in a carnival that like some kids are trapped in overnight. And it's like the first half is so, so boring. <laughs> so boring. And then it kicks up during the second half. I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, we got some, we got a real movie going on now, but... It was so boring that I'd forgotten that I watched it. Yeah. And, like, I saw it when I was, like, 20, and then I watched it again when I was 27, and it didn't... I didn't realize that I'd seen it again until that halfway mark, and I was like, oh, God. Like, that first half is so boring, like, I don't even remember being bored by it. (laughs) You just checked out immediately. Yeah. Oh, man. I went to the fair this weekend. Oh, yeah? The Puyallup. Aren't they changing it to be, like, the... Yeah, I think it's the Washington State Fair now. Yeah. It's, in my mind, it will always be the Puyallup. Mm-hmm. Um, it was nice. I had a, a great time. I got to try a scone for the first time there. You've never had a scone? Never had a fair scone. I've only been twice, but... Um, well, what's the difference between a scone and a fair scone? Well, I don't know, but they're, those fair scones, they're, like, hot 
and buttered and jammy. That's a scum. <laughs> yeah, but it was delicious. I don't know. It's fair food. It's like a fair thing. Mm. Did you get an elephant ear? I didn't. Because they always smell good, but I swear to God you can't have one three bites of an elephant ear. Oh, God. And the plates of curly fries I saw people walking around with. <laughs> Enough to feed a family. Yeah, it like probably weighed as much as my head. Jeez. Like, <laughs> Yeah. But that's part of it. It's I, fun. It, it it almost seems like food that you buy at a fair, it's like they're selling it on the condition that you're going to throw it up. Yeah. <laughs> like, just... you can't chow down too much. Like, you can't make a meal out of fair food. No. But it's like, here, have some cotton candy oh. and some sweet bread covered with sugar and, you know, candy and caramel, and then uh, get on the teacups. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to throw up. <clears throat> Uh, I'm just kidding. So, <laughs> what did you watch? Um, I watched a Toby Hooper movie. Okay. Called Jin, D J I N N. Oh, okay. It wasn't very good. It was like all jump scares. Mm. Um, there was a couple like good gore parts, but I figured, you know, Toby Hooper just died. You gotta, you gotta at least try to see something <laughs> by him. I wanted to see Spontaneous Combustion because it has Brad Dorif in it. Oh, it's we hard. love Brad Dorif. We do love Brad Dorif. Hmm. Uh, it's sort of hard to come by. Like, I found some crappy versions on YouTube, but, you know, I want to see it the way that it's supposed to be seen. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, my local video rental store, it was checked out. Uh, so I got to wait for another week for that one. Unsurprising since, uh... Yeah. T-Hoop just died. Yeah. <laughs> T-Hoops. Uh, what about you? I have been uh, watching Glow. Oh, yeah. The Gorgeous the, Ladies of Wrestling. Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling TV show on the Netflix. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love it. Yeah. I'm really into it. I watched the whole thing in one evening. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very bingeable in that way. Yeah. It's the same people who did um, Orange is the Black and Weeds. Which has me nervous. Yeah, I know, because Weeds, what, jumped the shark at, like, minute 40? <laughs> Great premises, uh, just, I feel like that's, at least with those last two shows, that's kind of all they got, and then it really dives off, like, hits a cliff. Mm. So I'm a little nervous that that's when it's going to happen with this show, too, but man, that first season is so good. Mm. It's just like, mwah. Oh, you know what I watched? What? Uh, I finished Twin Peaks, oh, the new series, yeah. yesterday, because they did the last two episodes as, like, one thing yesterday. Mm-hmm. And while I can't say with any certainty, I feel strongly that there is going to be another season. Nice. Uh, you know, David Lynch isn't isn't known for really wrapping everything up in a nice, neat little bow. Mm. I was I was already behind. There was a lot in this new season that just felt like nothing. Mm. Like I'm gonna say. Between episodes 3 and 12, there was one episode that I think really, like, demanded my attention. That was the one that blew everybody's minds, right? Yes. Okay. The God of Light episode. Mm -hmm. And all the other ones, I was like, this is a lot of David Lynch humor. (laughs) And it just, it really felt like it wasn't going anywhere. And then in, like, episode 14 or 15, we finally get, like, Dale Cooper back. And the penultimate episode it really feels like things are wrapping up Uh but then it goes on for one more episode 
And it's like that whole episode just existed to create more questions. Oh, yeah. And the way that it ended, I'm like, okay, not a finale. <laughs> like, this is this is a beginning to something. So what you're saying is uh, episode 17 was uh, the screen saying the end. And then episode 18 is question mark? <laughs> Basically. Pretty much. <laughs> We are X-Rated, and we're here to talk about Scott Pilgrim versus the world. One, two, three, four. Directed by Edgar Wright, 2010. So I, I took very few notes, and it wasn't because I was being lazy, but it was because... As I was taking notes, I realized I was just writing down the movie. <laughs> Like, this was just notes to, like, dictate the movie to, like, a blind person. Yeah. <laughs> How kind of you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it starts out, you have the Universal logo with, like, the 8-bit soundtrack. Yeah, so, I mean, you can't... This movie is, like, made for me, it feels like. Mm -hmm. It's just, like, it's got um, scrappy bands, it's got 8-bit Nintendo references, um, it's colorful, it's intense pacing sometimes yeah. fast cuts like i'm just it's like man sign me up it's uh, we'll get to this uh later but it's like it's funny like definitely yeah it's also kind of sweet and romantic it's also sort of complex in its display of romance sure uh but by the end i even though i know how the finale like plays out mm -hmm. i still kind of get goosebumps when I mean, spoiler alert, when Scott's like, no, I'm doing this for me. Scott earned the power of self-respect. Speaking of goosebumps, this movie gives it to me several times. Like, okay. there's two specific scenes where I, I really feel it. And one is the fucking opening title sequence. Like, it starts off, you know, nice and kind of quiet. It does the 8-bit Universal logo, and then, it, you know, comes in. It's like, just starts off, Scott Pilgrim is dating a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like... Um, they're just kind of, it's all really quiet talking and then they go to band practice and then it just gets all like cut off. We are sex the bomb! One, two, three, four! And then that long pan back. Um, and then it just does all that crazy um, on film animation yeah. during the title sequence. It's just like, if you're not on board in, in those five minutes, like, leave the theater. <laughs> this is what the movie is. So I saw this movie in theaters, and I actively remember it being, like, some of the most fun I've had in a movie theater. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it was because everyone in the theater were just, like, comic book nerds and video game nerds, and they were all just there to sort of revel in a movie that kind of just celebrated, like, all sorts of different facets of nerddom. Yeah. Like, you know, or all sorts of, like, geekiness, I guess, you know, with music and video games and movies mm -hmm. like all just sort of wrapped into and like one manga, package i guess sure yeah. sure yeah and everyone in the theater had a blast yeah. everyone was just laughing at all the stuff just absolute good time start to finish 
And then I found out, like, later that this movie financially was a bomb. I was going to say, how many people were there in the theater? <laughs> like, it wasn't sold out, but it was, like, a crowded theater. Okay. Because I saw it uh, also in the theater, and it was maybe, like, two weeks after it had come out. Okay. And it was me and maybe six other people at Cinerama. Oh, God. It was sad. And oh, I couldn't man. believe it. Like, when it was over, I was thinking, like, why isn't everybody super excited about this movie? So... Yeah, I think it was a financial flop. Yeah, I think so too. Which is such a shame. Because yeah. I think it's maybe my favorite Edgar Wright movie. Like, looking back, I think I think history's going to be kind to this movie eventually. It'll but prove it right. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's just such a shame that nobody watched it when it came out. Well, also, because at the time I was managing an uh, independent music store, and we had, like, Blu-rays and stuff, we couldn't keep this Blu-ray in stock. Oh, yeah. Like... I guess, you know, if you're shopping at an independent music store for your Blu-rays, you probably have, you know, a moral opposition to Best Buy and things like that. Yeah. So, you know, you're already not shopping there. Yeah, yeah. But just the, both the movie and the soundtrack sold really well. Yeah. Uh, so that's, like, what also, like, reinforces my confusion as to this not being a financial success. Because it seems like people loved it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know if it's the way they marketed it or if like they didn't know how to package it or what but mm -hmm. um and it's hard for me to be critical of this movie like look at it with an objective viewpoint because i am so into like everything across the board and this movie really speaks to me as someone who's been in several failed music <laughs> projects in my 20s um and you know was really into 8-bit music too so like yeah i feel i feel like fans of 8-bit music like, there's a specific generation. Like, you had to have grown up playing, like, NES. Yeah. Because, like, I love it, and I sort of appreciate, like, the inventiveness. Like, they had just a set criteria yeah. that they could work inside. Yeah. And they had to do the most with that. And especially, like, as I grow older and I realize, like, these people, like, were big fans of Debussy and things like that. And how they, like, tried to put that into the format. Totally, yeah. And then you can hear it. Like, once you make that connection, you're like... Oh no, these people were like musical geniuses. They just could only work yeah. on this small Four set. channels, two saw waves, one square wave, and a triangle wave. It's like, good luck. Pretty impressive. Yeah, they, I mean, they did a lot with with very little. Yeah. I mean, they definitely, like, 8-bit music definitely lives up to the uh, less is more uh, nomenclature. Absolutely. And then, you know, it kind of, like, translates into Sex Bomb, their band, mm -hmm. to being, like, a three-piece, drums, bass, guitar, rock, rock. Yeah. yeah. Um, but still fucking jamming. I don't like all of their songs, but there's a couple that I think are really hot. They just, they have that sort of chunky guitar rhythm that I think all garage bands want, but mm -hmm. don't necessarily achieve. But, I mean, I know that, like, back and, like, Notable songwriters. Yeah. Beck wrote the songs. Nigel Godrich produced yeah. them. So it's sort of like, it's gonna sound good. But, um, yeah. That first one just like, still, like, sets you, gets you there, and, uh, ready to go. I get goosebumps every time. I get goosebumps thinking about it. So I, good. you know, I was never in a band, but I did live with a band for a number of years. Okay. So, like, I was around for, like, rehearsals and went to live shows and things like that. And this really kind of captures that band dynamic. Like, you were like young Neil? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you lived in the house but weren't in the van? <laughs> I always compare it to being in a marriage or being in a relationship. Okay. Because then it's like you have to consider everyone's needs. Yeah. You have to like, uh, when it's, you know, when a band breaks up, we call it a breakup. Yeah. And like, uh, 
Yeah, it's like being in a relationship, definitely. Yeah. And I don't know if Kim Pine was a reference to anything, but we have Stephen Stills, Mm -hmm. and then we have young Neil, Yeah. uh, who by the end is just Neil. From this point forward, you will be known as Neil. And I was like, is Kim Pine somehow related to Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young? I don't know. And then I was just thinking, well, I mean, there's a lot of famous Kims out in the rock and the roll world. Yeah, Kim Gordon. Kim Deal. Kim Deal. Maybe that's it. And Pine, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, she's great. I like her a lot. I like her um, deadpan kind of <laughs> shittiness. I like when they were going to the, um, the party, um, Aubrey Plaza's character's party, and they're like, you know, oh, man, this is going to suck. Uh, At least it'll give us something to complain about. Th- this, this gets into, like, how I was basically just writing down the movie yeah. instead of like, <laughs> taking notes on the movie. Yeah, I guess I kind of did too. But they get to that party, and I'm like, oh, this is such like an early 20s party. Everyone's got plastic cups filled with their drinks. Yep. Uh, and it gets to, I didn't write the guy's name out, it was like, Camau? Yeah, something like that. And it's like he knows everybody. But he's 25. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, there is always like that one guy that knows everybody at yeah. one of these parties Yeah. who just goes there to like, talk about how somebody's first album was better than their first album. Right. And he comes back later at the um the finale. The big club and like you can overhear him saying like, yeah, the, the movie's good, but the comic book was way yeah. better. The yeah. comic book is better than the movie. But only in the second version. That's right. <laughs> this movie really makes me feel like my twenties, or at least my early twenties. Uh it it just gives that feel of sort of like things maybe feeling like they're a big deal when they're kind of not. Yeah, oh, definitely. Uh, in retrospect, now that from the grand viewpoint of 37 years old, I can look back and say, oh, honey, that was nothing. But, um, you know, when you're that age, it can feel really big. Um, and I think that that's kind of why the battle scenes happen, because it's mm-hmm. like when you play video games, sometimes a battle can feel really important and sure. big. But it's pretty stupid <laughs> once you stand outside it, you know? Well, also, I, I sort of, like, I look back at short-term relationships that I had when I was, like, 19 and 20, mm-hmm. and they seem to have a bigger impact than relationships of the same amount of time that I have later on in life. Mm-hmm. It's like when I dated someone a month when I was 18, it was like, oh, my God, that was my whole world yeah. for a month. Now, if I date someone for a month and it ends, I'm like, well, whatever. <laughs> no. uh, and I think th- this movie kind of reflects that, like, when you're young, these relationships are so big and so daunting, and then as they get on, they become less so. Right. And the movie does a good job, because at the beginning, it feels like an early 20s sort of situation. But by the end of it, it's like they've matured over the course of the movie. And I think the original comic took place over the course of several years. Oh, okay. Where this takes place, you know, over a couple weeks, maybe. A month or so. And so I, I think in at least the source material... By the time they got to the other side of it, mm-hmm. like they had actually matured because several years had passed, and which I, th- I think makes a little bit more sense, yeah. Like in the grand scheme of storytelling, but like I don't know if the movie would have been as good if they had had it made it take place over several years, right? And I kind of struggled with that on my way, or while I was thinking about what I was going to say today, and uh, I actually considered going out and reading the whole uh, graphic novel series. But then I realized, you know, we're not X-rated source material. We're called X-rated movies, so we're talking about the movie. Talking about the movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, because they optioned this, like, after the first book was released. Okay. And, like, Edgar Wright was attached when the first book was released, I think. And, I mean, the movie 
went into production before the last book was finished too. Right. So yeah. he uh, uh, the ending of the movie is different from the the books themselves. The Game of Thrones did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they they GOT'd it before GOT. Yeah. Well, I guess that we should say that GOT uh, Scott SP'd it. Yeah. They they SPV TW. Absolutely. <laughs> I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, most of my notes are just, like, things about this movie that I like. Okay. So, um, my, yeah, my biggest, like, revelation of this movie I've already revealed, which is that, like, you know, the fight scenes are like what video games feel like when they feel like it's more important than it actually is. Otherwise, it's just, you know, fun stuff that I like. Well, then, can we reserve the rest of our hour to talk about how much I love Wallace? Guess who's drunk? <laughs> One of my questions here is, uh, Matt, do you relate to Wallace? I, I don't relate to Wallace. I aspire to be Wallace. <laughs> He's, he, he is my life goal. Uh-huh. Um, not particularly attractive. He's got some charm and some wit to him, but he gets that hot guy with glasses. So basically, that guy with glasses is hot. Yeah. Sign me up. <laughs> Yeah, he seems to have no problems uh, getting gentlemen. And he has quite possibly my favorite line when he's telling Scott that you have to break up with knives today. Uh, and then the dude with glasses walks out of the bathroom, even though Wallace has a boyfriend. Yeah. Hey, Jimmy. Double standard. I didn't make up the gay rule book. You got a problem with it? Stop. Pick it up with Liberace's ghost. I can't explain how beautiful a, like, a sentence that really is. Yeah, it's great. I really love when he's um, shit-talking the band that uh, performs before Sex Bomb from the balcony. <laughs> yeah. I like how their first song, they're like... This song is called, I Am So Sad. I Am So Very, Very Sad. Goes a little something like this. Thank you. Not a race, guys! It's like, ooh, good one. <laughs> Yeah, but Wallace, I don't know, I guess I'm a little conflicted on Wallace, because I do like him as a character. Very you don't much. know if you like him or love him? <laughs> if you're in lesbians with him? I said lesbians. There's some times where I'm like, is he is he a good representation of gay people? I don't know, I can't tell. He doesn't act gay, he is a little... What's the word? Predatory? Yeah. Okay. He just seems a little overly predatory with... Boys with glasses. <laughs> well, he asked him, he says, Hey, Jimmy, do they rock or suck? Which I don't know which one would uh, be, I'm, if the subtext of that question is, are you gay or straight? I don't know which one would be the right answer. But it turns out he does get to make out with him. And more. More. Uh, assumably. Yeah. So, good job, Wallace. Yeah. But he doesn't die. No, he doesn't. That's right. Neither do, I mean, none of the gay characters die. I guess. They turn into coins? Yeah. I don't know. The violence in this movie is kind of fun because there's no blood. Yeah. But, like, people are getting slammed through walls and I, stuff. I was definitely thinking about that. I was like, presumably these people are dying mm-hmm. at the end of these battles. But no one's really that sad or upset or... Yeah. I mean, so. the rules are kind of out the window as soon as uh, that first fight scene happens. Mr. Pilgrim! It is I! Matthew Patel. Consider our fight begun. It's like, oh, not this movie is a fantasy. Yeah, you know, like 
He's shooting fireballs. He's got his hipster demon chicks behind him. Yeah. It's a musical for a short period yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think I read that that was kind of what Edgar Wright was going for, was like he wanted this to be like a musical, but instead of people bursting into song, they burst into fight scenes. Which, that's what it Mission feels like. Accomplished. Yeah. yeah, when those fight scenes start going on, they kind of come out of nowhere, and then it's all of a sudden, action sequence! You know? And they seem to have a different set of rules. Yeah. <laughs> Once they start, for sure. Yeah. Real fast, you've... you've you're on record as not liking Chris Evans in a certain movie. Um, how did you feel about Chris Evans in this role? Well, he was fine here because he was just playing some bro douchebag. Like, you know, obviously the part that he was born to play. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's actually hilarious. No, I had no problem with him on this one. But yes, the movie in question where he's playing some, you know, the world's greatest space engineer. <laughs> yeah, I had a problem with that. But no, him playing... A douchebag uh, movie star? Yeah. Idiot action movie star that has a skateboarding company. No, <laughs> for some reason that didn't seem like too much of a stretch. <laughs> I want to talk about Ellen Wong a little bit. Is that Knives? Mm-hmm. She's in Glow. That's why I wanted to talk about <laughs> it. Because that was the reason I started watching it. I mean, like, oh. your recommendation was part of it. But then also, I was just looking up her because I liked her so much that it was like, who is she? Like, I actually, she, because she plays a character that normally I hate. The, like, goofy girl. Like, mm. for some reason, always just, like, makes me cringe. Mm. I just, no, I just haven't really seen a girl do it right, except in this movie. I think she's actually really funny, and... So you hate Zoe Deschanel's oeuvre? Yeah. <laughs> Ouch, there, Zoe Deschanel. It. Come on and defend it, Zoe. I just feel like she's a she's a, she's an underrated maybe actress. Like I feel like I mean I'm glad she's in Glow mm-hmm. as Fortune Cookie. Um, I want to see her do more. I want to see more of Ellen Wong. Yeah, she was really good because she she really nails that like I'm cute and innocent. Mm-hmm. And then when I, the tables get turned, for some reason I didn't it didn't seem unreasonable that she's also vengeful and mean. Yeah, like that all seemed to play in just fine. She's just uh, she's a good actress who uh, can play goofy, but also play action well. Uh, so I think I mentioned this at the beginning, but I think this movie does a really good job of showing sort of a complexity of romance, because the beginning of the movie, we have Scott Pilgrim, who's in a real, like, just schoolhouse crush relationship. Yeah. They almost <laughs> hold hands. <laughs> you know, they hugged once. And it it really has that sort of innocent romance to it. But then one night with Ramona Flowers and, like, she's in her undies and, you know, she changes her mind about sex, but the implication was that if sex was on the table, they just would have had sex after the one date. On the one hand, he has his storybook sweet, naive romance, but on the other hand is like, Oh no, we have what romance is actually like, by and large. Yeah, he and Nyes' relationship, like, screams rebound to me, still. Mm. Like every other character is telling Scott. Scott, I forbid you from hitting on Ramona, even if you haven't had a real girlfriend in over a year. Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Scott's mourning period is officially over. He's totally dating a high schooler. Dating a high schooler is the mourning period. He's got a point. I read that, apparently, the original ending of this was that Scott ends up with Knives. But for a couple reasons, which I can't remember, I only remember one was that, like, audiences weren't into it, but, like, 
they switched it and had him end up with uh, Ramona. And watching it today, I was trying to think, like, I don't know, how do, what would it, how would I feel if he ended up with Knives? And um, I actually kind of like this ending maybe a little more because yeah. uh, Knives is too cool for him. I like that they give her that line. I'm too cool for you anyway. And also it's cool because it's like, Ramona's kind of a broken character like Scott is. You know, we, yeah. she sort of starts off on this pedestal, but then it sort of, as the movie goes along, gets revealed that like, no, she's just as lost as he is in a lot of ways. Or yeah. uh, not fully formed as he is, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the way that it's at least presented in the movie is that Ramona matured young but then also kind of got stunted young. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she started dating Matthew Patel. Uh, as common a name as Matthew is, you don't see it a lot in movies, so I took note of it. <laughs> but, you know, it's not like she branched out or found like someone who was good for her emotionally or yeah. stable for her. Like She dated hotshots and bigwigs and people who you know like the spotlight, you know, stuff mm-hmm. like that. Or situational ones where it's like, oh, we were... The ones who hated the football team yeah, together, or yeah. things like that. Yeah, so it's not necessarily good relationships, mm-hmm. just like convenient ones, kind mm-hmm. of. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to say that it like breaks her down, but it just shows her that she's not this goddess on high, right? And she... then also that she like can't help herself around G-Man, yeah, played by Jason Schwartzman. Um, no, no one does smug, like self-satisfied, like yeah. Jason Schwartzman. Oh. Scott, no, we really should be thanking each other. I mean, if it wasn't for me, Ramona would never have been with you, but if it wasn't for you, she wouldn't have gotten back with me. So I guess it all shakes out, huh? This is what made him so good in, like, Rushmore. Yeah. Was that he's just he's just so happy with himself. <laughs> and so pleased with himself. And that's what this role called for. Is, oh, yeah. He's perfectly cast. Yeah. Well, you were talking a couple weeks ago when you were talking about watching Valerian, how the <laughs> casting director should have been... <laughs> you know, taken behind the shed. Yeah. Like, this movie was cast perfectly. Yeah, it's it really it really is. Michael Sarah as like the awkward early twenties, like that's what he is. Yeah. And he's Canadian, so Oh is he really? I think so. Okay. Uh Mary Elizabeth Winstead has just that, that perfect sort of like I'm cool but I don't care that I'm cool mm-hmm. aura to her. Mm-hmm. You got Jason Schwartzman as G Man with his Smug self-satisfaction. Yeah. Uh, I love, um... Oh, shit. I didn't write her name down. Yes, I can't remember her name, but... You better. So many times. Little Arrested Development reunion going on. Yeah, she has the best lines. Punch me in the boob! Oh, I'd love to postpone, darling, but I just cashed my last rain check. What's that from? My brain! I was just a little bi-curious. Well, honey, I'm a little bi-curious! about to get effed in the Shit, those are good lines. <laughs> yeah, she had real good lines. Yeah. And I like that fight sequence actually too, quite a bit, the, the girl fight. A lot of fun. Each fight... Uh, so one thing why it was also hard to take notes on this is because every scene had its own kind of character to it. Mm-hmm. Like its own unique little nuances, little touches... I mean, especially the fight sequence. There was no two fight sequences that were the same. Yeah. And they're all kind of modeled off of video game fights. Yeah, in one way or another. Uh, 
or maybe exaggerated to, to one effect or another. But, yeah. uh, yeah, just each fight has had its own distinctive personality to it, which was nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've heard you talk about uh, the one with the the Japanese twins. Oh yeah, when the monsters like come out. Oh look at gives me goosebumps. <laughs> well, you, I I think you mentioned like that's how it feels when you're actually like playing in front of an audience. Yeah, I can. <laughs> <laughs> it, when there's a crowd. <laughs> so that's another that's another one of the you know being sequences in this movie that gives me goosebumps when it, when it's that uh, battle of bands amp versus amp competition because it's like there's this weird the double dragons come out you know which is a video game reference and then their green-eyed monster comes out it kind of looks like donkey kong yeah and then that's what the battle is yeah and they're playing my favorite song that sex robot does which is threshold and mm-hmm. it's just like i don't know it gets me going every time it's so good and it's so it's short too it's not a long fight no, but I I don't know. It's really exciting. I like it. I mean, none of the fight sequences really overstay their welcome. I feel, yeah. but, you know, they're all pretty concise, and they just and it it also the movie bucks like the trend of like action at the beginning, exposition, a little bit more action, a little bit more exposition, mm-hmm. finale. Yeah. Like there's usually that like sine wave of like the James Bond thing where you got your your big stunt to open it with. You got plot, you got a little action in the middle to keep the audience interested, you got more plot, and then you have a... The final... Yeah. This, it, like, wavers. Like, you... I mean, you definitely have six battles, because two of the X's are in one band together. Yeah. But it, it helps buck that trend of just action talk, action talk, finale. Right. You know, this has that good mixture that works outside that framework it does have a different feel pacing wise i guess i didn't really think about that until you, you mentioned it now and um i kind of like that it feels fresh mm-hmm. to me rather than like odd and the dialogue is so snappy that when you're in the exposition i feel that a lot of times it's just as entertaining as the the fight sequences you know yeah. scott reading an email is a hugely entertaining scene. Dear Mr. Pilgrim, it has come to my attention that we will be fighting soon. My name is Matthew Patel, and blah, 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 blah. Fair warning. Mono mano, seven evil, blah, blah. This is, this is, this is. What? This is boring. Delete. And he does like the rainy trick of like, making small little gestures seem huge. Like, you know, when they're at the club, the first, like, Battle of the Bands thing, and everyone's, like, looking at each other, and, like, the camera, like, you know, zooms out, and, like, there's the uh, animation that, like, you know, emphasizes the dramatic right, elements right, right, of it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that, like, that's a classic Raimi move. But it really makes just, like, those small moments feel big. Yeah. You know, they, it, it, makes, it makes them look the way they feel when you're living them. You know, I think that was like I actually think that was intended in the um, source material too. I think mm. that like that was kind of the idea was like making small everyday things feel so much bigger and well, giving I mean, them this like. Raimi loved his comic books. Yeah, well, so, there you go. You know, maybe he just drew it from that. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So e- even just them, t- like the exposition parts of the the movie are still hugely entertaining. Absolutely. Like I, there's really no scene that feels wasted yeah even the ones that aren't you know directed with a capital d 
they still feel like they have like enough jokes or enough like banter that it pulls it through. Like when Scott finds out that bread makes you fat. Bread makes you fat? Yeah, or like when he's coming home uh, mm. from making out with Ramona and then it's like a Seinfeld uh, oh, yeah. transition and it's like, you know, we've got the audience laugh track going on. Yeah. Um, and there's little punch-ups like that all throughout the movie. There's little video game sounds everywhere. And I don't know. I, some people criticize this being like, this is for the MTV generation, not for other people. But it's like, I don't know. Fuck that. Like... I, I mean, it, it is. It does seem sort of generation specific. Like, I think you kind of have to know, or at least have a sensibility for a lot of these old classic video games. Yeah, and you know, maybe it was just aimed at you know millennials. Uh, and you know, we're not exactly a movie going generation. I know you're not in that generation, but you know, we're harder to get to the theater than than other generations. Yeah. So I mean, maybe that that was one thing that contributed to it was that. You know, it was targeted at us, but it's, you know, we'll just wait for it on watching our phones. <laughs> but this is, like I said before, it's really hard for me to be objective about this movie because it's so targeted to me mm-hmm. and just, like, hits every, I mean, hits every button for me. So it's, it's, it's really hard for me to not be like, why doesn't anybody, like, not like this? I don't get it. Yeah, because, I mean, it basically just took how I felt during, like, I'm going to say ages... 18 to 27 and made a movie about my feelings. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, or out of my feelings. Um, but, and it does this cool trick where it's like now watching it 10 years past that point, I can still get those feels Mm -hmm. of that time, but I don't, I don't, uh, feel nostalgic or like regretful or any of these, like, it just feels like fun. It, It kind of like makes them, like, I don't know, you, people are all like, oh, Stranger Things is amazing. It gets all the best stuff of the 80s. And I'm just like, mm. I mean, it has its merits, but it's like you can't just point to the something 80s and be like, remember this? Yeah. Remember how this was the thing? And then, like, expect me to be interested in it, you know? You can't just reference things and then expect people to become nostalgic for it. Like, you have to emotionally get me invested. Otherwise, I don't mm-hmm. care. You yeah. Know? And this movie manages to get me emotionally invested without relying on the nostalgia factor yeah definitely there's definitely a nostalgia factor but it's not it's not using it as a crutch it's using it as embellishment okay so i think we've talked about all of ramona's evil exes Mm -hmm. which one do you want to bang the most it's tough i'm gonna go with Todd the vegan. Yeah, me too. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. I could I could do vegan food and um plays an instrument. Brandon Ruth is pretty pretty easy on the eyes. Indeed, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not the smartest though. Definitely not. Not really worried about it. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's probably where I'd go. I mean three is the magic number. Well, I was also gonna say part of me wants to date the Japanese twins. Yeah. Uh oh yeah. But they, they're not really given too much depth. Like, the music, like, that scene is pretty awesome. Right. But they don't have any speaking lines. Yeah, we don't learn enough about them. Jason Schwartzman's cute. Not cute enough to, like, out of the, out of the, out of the bunch. Though. Not that character, either. <laughs> Ugh. Ugh. So, 
maybe it may have just like aged out of this, but I, I feel that when I was in early to mid twenties, everyone was vegan except for me. <laughs> uh-huh. And now I don't really feel like that's true. Like when I go out to eat, like rarely ever is there like someone who's hardcore vegan. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, I mean, I still definitely know people who are vegan, vegetarian, but I felt like I was in the minority by not being one of those things in early mid twenties. Yeah, yeah. That the majority of the people that I knew were one of those things. Uh, so the battle with Todd <laughs> and his vegan psychic powers. Uh-huh. For me, like that rings so specifically true to a specific point in my life. Uh, but I wonder if it does. Like, is that was that a fan? Like, was that sort of a you know, late 90s through the aughts fad per capita? Is there not as many militant vegans as there used to be? I imagine there still are. Um, I think it's more of a comment on how people go through that phase a lot in their 20s. Okay. Um, And, you know, but no, I, I think there's definitely still some vegans out there. I just, I just remember there was like a certain period of time where we, but maybe it's also that, like, the market has changed. Because I remember having to, like, pick out restaurants that had vegan options. Yeah. And maybe just every restaurant has vegan options now, and I don't have to think about it. They do. I think they do more so now. Uh, so as someone who works in the service industry, trust me, there are vegans. <laughs> and they'll let you know. Being vegan just makes you better than most people. Vegans do get touchy about it, though. And, um... I'm sorry, I'm going to make fun of you, because it is, it is a lifestyle choice. Sure. Um, hey, we've had that thrown on us for decades, yeah. so... <laughs> you, you can eat otherwise, but... Um, no, I support, I support vegan. I actually like a lot of vegan food. Um, We're, we are getting to a point some where... Some of my like, best friends are vegan. <laughs> I mean, we are getting to a point where some of those fake meats are pretty tasty. Oh, yeah. So... Field Roast Sausages is a local company, and boy, do I love eating it. Let me tell you. Made here in Seattle since the 90s. Can you believe it? They've got celebration roast for fancy, you know, celebrations if you want to have it for Thanksgiving or Christmas. Yeah. Good to know. <laughs> you could chop up one of those Italian sausages, put it on a pizza. It's like it's sausage on a pizza. Why? I wouldn't have known if I hadn't listened to this podcast. Yeah. I mean, if one of their marketing people wanted to reach out to us and ask us to market for them, do ads, I would ad- gladly do so. Well, right, because they meet our standards of quality and earth-friendly. Anyway, thanks, Field Roast. You make life better. (sighs) feel dirty all of a sudden. (laughs) So the vegan fight also introduces the third Arrested Development alum... One of the vegan police is Thomas Jane. That's right. <laughs> the homeless movie star in Arrested Development. I just want my kids back. There's also, what's her name? Who plays uh, Brie... What's her name? Larson? Brie Larson is in this movie. Yeah, I saw her name in the opening credits and I was waiting for her to show up and I couldn't see her anywhere. She's the lead singer of the Clash of Demon Head band. No. She's Envy. Yeah. She's Envy? Yeah. She looks so young, doesn't she? I was going to say, I couldn't tell by looking at her. Yeah. And she's, I think, she's great in this, actually. I like her a lot. Yeah, I like her a lot. I did not reckon, I did not see Brie Larson. Like, Academy Award winner Brie Larson. (laughs) Yeah. Apparently the song that they do was a song written by Metric, a Canadian band. Oh, okay. Um, And they're supposed to be, like, kind of modeled off of Metric. 
That makes sense. Because yeah. uh, I was watching, I was like, oh, like, the song's actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. And I can see how, like, it's, like, a little polished, a little meant for mainstream. And I was thinking the kills. Oh, yeah. Uh, but metric, I think, actually makes more sense. Yeah. And it's apparently the version of that song uh, is the actual one with uh, Emily Haynes singing on the soundtrack. Mm. So. Uh, but, uh... Yeah, metric did, uh... Was it... It was either Cosmopolis or Maps of the Stars, one of the Cronenberg movies, where Metric teamed up with Howard Shore, who does the score to all of Cronenberg's movies, essentially. Cool. Those Canadians sticking together. Yeah, they really do stick together. I wanted to keep track of how many editing tricks they did. Yeah. Like, how many times, like, you know, someone would walk into a room, the door would close, and they'd walk out half a second later wearing totally different clothes. Because uh-huh. it's so smooth. Like, you don't see the cut. Totally, yeah. But obviously there had to have been a cut. Same with, like, Wallace face plankton on the bed, and then it's only daytime. Yeah. Uh, when he goes to Ramona's house and spends the night, it just shows the house at night, and then, like, boom, it's daytime. Yeah, there's just so many quick cuts that are just seamless. You could say that this is a movie that's really made with an editor's eye. You might be able to say that, yes. Uh, it's almost as if Edgar Wright is thinking about the editing process while he's making the movie. Good observation, Matt. Well, you know, I try and see a movie from all perspectives. Real fast, before we before we exit, um, I'm a big fan of Easter eggs in Edgar Wright, movie, Edgar Wright movies. It's kind of uh, one of his things. Stuff you may not notice first, second, third time viewing. All his movies reward um, repeated views. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one, one that popped out to me that I can't believe I've never noticed before, is when he goes into the final fight scene, puts on a Smashing pumpkin shirt, which their logo was a heart that had SP on it. Scott Pilgrim. Mm. It's just mm-hmm. like, duh, that's great. It's so so small and simple. Um, all the X's, like just before the, uh, the battle would happen, there would be a shot with either a number or the number of X's that were coming up. Oh, really? Yeah, so like just as they're climbing the stairs to go up to the castle to um, meet up with... Uh, Chris Evans is there's like crosswalks and it has like X on one side, X on one, so it's like pedestrian X. Or like when they're going into the after party from the um, Clash of Demon Head show, the name of the um, club is four and there's a great big four that they're walking under. So, I mean, it's just like small things like that that you may not catch right away are so much fun on, on repeated viewings to, yeah. to, to see. Anyway, I think this is probably my, my favorite Edgar Wright movie so thus far. Yeah, I was gonna. I don't know if it's my favorite, but it's definitely the easiest to rewatch because it wasn't that long ago that I watched this movie. Yeah, did you enjoy watching it for? I did. Like it. It's such an easy watch. There's so much going on. There's different things to pay attention to. It's like watching a long episode of one of your favorite television shows. A little bit. Like it's so fun and it's so snappy that it. Re- repeating it doesn't bother me at all. Yeah. It, it's super easy to watch back to back almost. We're big, you know, auteurs on this podcast, but sometimes when you give somebody with real talent a lot of money, they can make something awesome. <laughs> Uh-huh. 
Uh-huh. Like, for, for work, he had to do a public presentation. Okay. And, you know, nobody's favorite thing is to, like, speak publicly. But, you know, sometimes you got to do it. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, it was an hour-long talk that I had to lead. I was Ugh. like, oh, God, like, in front of a crowd? I was like, I don't think I could talk about anything for an hour. And he goes, what are you talking about? You do it every week. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, but I'm not giving a presentation. Yeah. I was like, this also isn't public, but he's like, but you're releasing it to the public. Well, yeah, talking to a microphone is different than getting up in front of an audience. Yeah, this definitely doesn't feel like anybody's listening at all. <laughs> well, Matt, what have we got in store for next week? Well, next week uh, is October 2nd in the year of our Lord, 2017. And we have been blessed to have... Five Mondays in this October. One, two, three, four, five. A that, whole hand's worth. That's five episodes of X-rated in one month. Oh my god. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna usher it in. October is officially Schlocktoberfest. I'm scared, Matt. So next Monday, October the second. We will be reviewing my favorite werewolf movie. Okay. Bad Moon with oh. Mariel Hemingway. Oh. oh, okay. From like 1997. Interesting. All right. Um, I know that the mid-90s were not a high point in horror cinema, or some would argue cinema in general. Mm-hmm. And uh, this might be an exception to that rule, or it might not be, depending on how you view things. But it's anything like Twix. <laughs> it is considerably better than Twix. Okay. I think you'll like it, though. Right. At least on some level. You ready to uh, plug our junk? Let's plug our junk. Like, rate, subscribe on iTunes. Indeed, you can get there by uh, website, by uh, app, or by train, bus, cyberlink. I'm sure if you go to, like, you know, the Apple campus, someone there will be able to help you with that. <laughs> uh, also, we're on Twitter, at XRatedMovies. Follow us on Facebook, at RatedXMovies. We've also got email, x.rated.movies at gmail.com. You can send us suggestions for field roast recipes. And come to our new website, fuelroast.com slash x-rated movies <laughs> x-rated movies brought to you by field roast sausages has a nice ring to it you gotta admit next week we're starting off Matt's horror movie fantastico we're still workshopping the title I was gonna say movie marathon rolls off the tongue so easily <laughs> with bad moon bad moon we'll see you next week bye bye bye